chance of rain or snow in the afternoon. It'll be much colder with a high of 43. Temperature falling into the 30s in the afternoon and a 50% chance of rain. A quick look at temperatures throughout the state right now. In DeKalb, it is cloudy and 60. Chicago O'Hare, it is cloudy and 62. Kankakee, cloudy and 58. Uh, At Champaign, Willard Airport, it is cloudy and 60 degrees with a 57-degree dew point, and it is 59 degrees at Friends Plaza here in Urbana. This is WILL. Support for today's broadcast comes from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Urbana-Champaign on the corner of Green Street and Birch in Urbana, where progressive religion has had a home for more than 150 years. More information is on the web at uucuc.org or visit on Sunday mornings before services at 9.30 or 11.15. It's the Afternoon Magazine on WILL. I'm Chris Berube. Last week, the credit rating agency Standard & Poor's reduced Illinois' bond rating to an A-. Now, that may not sound so bad, but with the new rating, Illinois now has the worst bond rating of any state in the union. And according to S&P, things in the state are going to get worse before they get better. As state treasurer Dan Brutherford told me, that's going to make it a lot harder for Illinois to borrow money. Well, it basically is uh, similar to a credit score for an individual that your bank may look at, saying that if your credit score is low, when you go in to borrow money for, say, a mortgage or your car payment, that you're going to pay more in interest. So in simplest of terms, it's the same thing. When the state of Illinois will look to go into the bond market to borrow money for school construction or road construction, in simplest of terms, it'll say they're going to be paying more in interest than if they had a much better uh, credit score, or in this case, a bond rating. How did this happen exactly? Well, they attributed, and rightfully so, as have Moody's and Fitch, which are two other Um, credit rating agencies basically said it's because of the financial condition our state is in and predominantly the unfunded liability in our state public pension systems. So basically they're saying that we've got such a horrible pension system structure as far as uh, funding levels that it puts everything in the whole financial situation of our state in in a bad financial standing. Yeah, they did cite pensions as kind of the primary issue. Um, what other major issues cause this, do you think? Well, I mean, this is, I mean, from the rating agencies, this is it. I mean, the, the idea it's just, of It's all parties, pensions? It's all pensions? I mean, that's, that's what's driving this whole thing. I mean, you know, we've gone out, we've raised the income tax in Illinois two years ago in 2011. And the fact is, you know, it didn't fix the problem. The idea of, uh, you know, our outstanding bills to vendors in 2011 was $8.5 billion. Now it's 2013. Two years later, now it's $9 billion. So talking about um, this pension problem specifically, were you in charge and had kind of your way of things? Like, what would you do to the pension sure. system right now? I think I, well, I would say a couple things. I would look at the idea of the retiree health care. You know, to have all of the health care paid for retirees, regardless of the, the amount of income they have, I think is quite fair. If a widow is living on her deceased husband's pension and she was making, say, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, to have free health care or state-paid health care, just like a university professor that, let's say, retired with $150,000, $170,000 salary, and have them having you know, state-funded health care, it doesn't seem to make sense. So I would, I would have the health care part of it put into a means test based on what the pension is, what their income is. Other would be the COLA, the cost of living adjustment. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if someone retires, that's what their pension is. But what the annual increases are, I believe, should be subject to 
some other factor than just an automatic 3%. I believe it should deal with, for example, CPI, you know, have it deal with the consumer price index. So you do those types of things that I think are fair, they're reasonable. Aren't those comparatively small? I mean, this pension crisis is huge. This is something that a number of people have said could bankrupt the state. Isn't now kind of the time for pretty dramatic action? Well, here, I, I, there is time for dramatic action, but it has to be done in a way that is also constitutional. And I wouldn't suggest that something that I talked to you about is necessarily small to the extent that that won't fill the backfill of the amount of, of problem there. But what we're trying to do right now is stop digging the hole deeper. That's what we have to do now. So, and, and, you know, these are only two examples that I come up with quickly. There are so many other examples as well that we can put out there. And I look and invite others to, to tell me what their thoughts are, put them on the table, and they're not all going to be popular, but put them on the table. So you alluded to the constitutionality of reforming um, pensions in Illinois, specifically that there is a clause in the state charter that says that basically guarantees uh, government employees their pensions or guarantees people uh, that their pension will not be reduced. For making a, a big, dramatic sweeping action, though, I mean, do you think there has to be a change to that element of the Constitution? I mean, would you consider it necessary for us to make a change like that to address the size of this problem? I'm not going to suggest that because that's not going to be politically doable at all. That will take years to get done. I'm suggesting that we go to things that we can get done that are going to be substantial and fair now. And, you know, I'm not sure that it is appropriate to change one's pension after they've already, you know, earned it and have the covenant as a part of the agreement to receive it. I'm not sure I agree with that anyway. But I do think that we need to look at, you know, people that are already in the system, future people in the system, where we are in regards to health care and cost of living. That's State Treasurer Dan Rutherford. Right now, the state has nearly $100 billion in unfunded pension liability. As you heard, Treasurer Rutherford has his ideas for how to fix the problem. But one thing stalling all reforms is the issue of constitutionality. The state charter says that nobody can have their pension taken away after they've already earned it. As economist Jeff Brown told me, it's kind of hard to know what that actually means. We've seen interpretations run the gamut from uh, one extreme saying that the guarantee is really only a guarantee by the pension fund, and if it runs out of money, all bets are off. I don't think the courts will buy that. Um, at the other extreme is the view that once a person enters into the system, you can never reduce their formula. So that means that even if we hired an 18-year-old today, we are stuck with the existing formula for that 18-year-old for the next you know, 45 years. I think it would be incredibly unfortunate uh, for the state of Illinois if the courts ruled that that was the appropriate interpretation. It may be, but I'm hopeful for the state that it is not, because uh, if that's the case, we're in a, we may be in an unrecoverable situation. I actually think the middle ground and the one that I'm hoping the courts will decide, which I think is a plausible interpretation, is to say that any benefits that have been earned up until the date of reform are protected. So any current retirees would be protected, and anyone who is near retirement, everything they've earned up to that point would be protected. But that we ought to be allowed to have a conversation about what benefits ought to look like going forward, even for existing employees. You, uh, you use the word unrecoverable as a possible outcome if the courts rule a certain way. Um, when will we know that? Well, I think what, uh, there are two steps to that. First of all, is I think we're going to have to pass some kind of a reform and have it be challenged, have it go to the courts, and then hope that the courts actually lay out uh, with 
more clarity what they believe is and is not constitutional in this state. I actually don't think it would be such a bad idea to just pick one of the pension plans and make a whole bunch of small changes to various parameters, let the courts sort out what we can and cannot do, and then we know, okay, we can do this without violating the Constitution. That process is going to take a while. First of all, we we have to get some kind of reform passed, which is obviously proving quite difficult. Then there will be lawsuits to challenge it, and it'll probably be you know years before that's all sorted out. At that point, we'll then have to, and the markets will have to reassess whether or not they think that under whatever the courts have ruled, we think that the situation is is in fact, recoverable or not. I continue to be optimistic that there's a way out of this, but you know, it is possible to create a problem that is so big that we can't solve it. And if any state is uh, going to discover that, it's going to be us. I know that you analyze policy and are not someone to speculate on you know, what it will include, um, but do you feel some optimism that a reform is going to get passed? Well, I'm more optimistic today than I was a couple of years ago, because I think uh, the general public, the voting public in the state of Illinois, really does recognize uh, how severe this problem is. I think the pressure from the rating agencies is, is simply confirming that. And frankly, I think our elected officials really do understand. There are always ways of doing pension reform, and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Uh, what I mean by that is you can reform pensions in a way that is fiscally responsible while still respecting the important role that pensions play in our compensation of our public employees. Or you can reform pensions through accounting gimmicks, which I hope we don't resort to. You say accounting gimmicks. The first thing that comes to mind is that uh, idea of minting a trillion-dollar coin that we heard a couple weeks ago. <laughs> is, is it that kind of thing? Would that be the kind of accounting gimmick well, you're referring to? that would be a little more extreme. I mean, uh, look, the other thing that Illinois has done in the past is they've agreed to schedules of how we're going to amortize or pay down this liability over time, and they'll have a 45-year plan, but all the pain comes at the end. And uh, so it looks like they're on a path to uh, a sustainable system, but they haven't really made the hard choices and committed to them in a way that makes it credible. Just yeah. a little bit worried that we might do something like that again. Jeff Brown is a professor of finance and the director of the Center for Business and Public Policy at the University of Illinois. You can find a link to all of our coverage of the state pension issue at will.illinois.edu. Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Lincoln Square in Urbana, a lifestyle center with unique and independently owned food stores and entertainment facilities like Common Ground Food Co-op and 88 Broadway. And here is the Writer's Almanac for Tuesday, the 29th of January, 2013. It's the birthday of the man considered the master of the modern short story, Anton Chekhov, born 1860 on this day in Taganrog, Russia. Anton Chekhov, whose family was poor, who had to support himself as a tutor and as a writer for newspapers, described his teenage years as a never-ending toothache got into medical school, Moscow University, and paid his own way through school, writing funny stories 
for Russian newspapers and magazines. Chekhov said, Medicine is my lawful wife, and literature is my mistress. When I get fed up with one, I spend the night with the other. Though it is irregular, it is less boring this way, and besides, neither of them loses anything through my infidelity. The same year he became a doctor, he started coughing up blood. He'd contracted tuberculosis, which eventually killed him when he was in his 40s. He preferred lovers and prostitutes to a committed, monogamous relationship. Chekhov said he was willing to marry if his wife would live in Moscow while he lived in the country and he could come and see her. He said, give me a wife who, like the moon, won't appear in my sky every day. There were a great number of doctors who also wrote fiction and poetry, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who gave us Sherlock Holmes. Walker Percy was a medical doctor, Michael Crichton. Arturo Vivante wrote over 70 stories for the New Yorker magazine. He was a doctor, as was Robert Bridges, who also was poet laureate of England. Robin Cook, the author of mystery thrillers and Dr. Abraham Verghese, who teaches medicine at Stanford and has a secret office on campus 